Hello, and welcome to the Satellite Image Deep Learning Podcast. I'm Robin Cole, and it's my pleasure to present another technically focused episode in the series. In this episode, I catch up with Ryan Avery to learn about the machine learning workflow at Development Seed. Ryan is an expert in developing machine learning powered services for processing satellite and camera trap imagery, and he is deeply passionate about leveraging machine learning to enhance environmental outcomes and improve livelihoods. In addition to his work at Development Seed, Ryan has made significant contributions to open source. These include a comprehensive two-day geospatial Python curriculum, an image segmentation model service, and a TorchServe deployment of MegaDetector for wildlife monitoring. Our conversation was highly educational, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? Great. Great. Great to be here, Robin. Thank you. So I've been a big fan of Development Seed, and you're obviously working there as well. Do you mind just giving us a quick introduction to the company and your role at it? Absolutely, yeah. So Development Seed is uh, a small to mid-sized company, about 50, 50 folks, 50 um, engineers um, that work on geospatial solutions um, that span from uh, making it easier to access and process geospatial data, um, so both imagery and vector data, as well as uh, we have a GeoAI team. So I'm a machine, le machine learning engineer on that team. Uh, we do everything from helping folks with data annotation for uh, creating custom machine learning models to training those models, evaluation, and then uh, helping them serve those models to users. Um, so yeah, we kind of like span all pieces of like the geospatial product development um, around uh, platform development as well as like the machine learning model development. Right. And one of the things I did notice about development is you're very open uh, around both the work you do and how you do it. I, I noticed you almost got 500 repositories on GitHub, which is just an incredible number, for example. And you've obviously uh, co-authored or authored many of the blog posts from the company. That was what sparked this conversation, of course. You published uh, a three-part series on your your tool stack, and I thought it'd be a really exciting opportunity just to talk through what that tool set looked like and also to get an idea of the arc of how an ML project looks. So perhaps we could start at the beginning. Where does a project begin? Absolutely, yeah. So depending on um, the project, you know, it might be less of, less of an arc and a bunch of zigzags, you know. Mm. It's a, um, we're working in a place, uh, in, a, in a domain where um, labels are scarce. Uh, sometimes the uh, tasks, like the detection challenges, are quite difficult. And so, uh, you know, every project looks different. But I'll try to like give like a general overview of what a typical development seed ML project looks like. So typically we're um, focused on uh, an, an environmental monitoring problem for um, uh, detection uh, targets that uh, can be uh, modeled with uh, computer vision techniques like object detection or segmentation. Mm -hmm. So uh, these objects should be like clearly resolvable in an image and clearly resolvable as objects. Um, we also do a little bit of like time series and, and change detection, but um, a lot of our projects are focused on taking a lot of the uh, awesome models and methods that have been de developed in uh, computer vision and deep learning and applying that to satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. So typically we'll start off um, with a, a, a client that, uh, you know, doesn't have any data set, doesn't have, uh, you know, they have an idea of what they want to monitor or map. And then we help them in the process of like planning out 
how to annotate that data set. Um, so how do we you know, serve the imagery uh, quickly to annotators so that they can create a high quality labeled data set? Um, how do we evaluate uh, that label quality? And then from there, uh, how do we then uh, package that data set into um, a servable format that makes it efficient to train a machine learning model? Um, how do we provision the infrastructure, uh, the cloud infrastructure to uh, train that machine learning model? Because if you're not familiar for folks listening, like these um, training these machine learning models requires a specialized um, infrastructure called uh, GPUs, graphical processing units. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we assist with that. Um, and then uh, that's when folks like machine learning engineers like I come in once we have all of that data set and infrastructure set up to actually assist with training the machine learning models, evaluating them. Um, and then uh, from there, if we have a great model, uh, then we can get into all the technology stack around serving that model um, mm -hmm. and, you know, scaling up resources, you know, based on user demand uh, to provide uh, model inferences that predict something in the environment from satellite imagery. That could right. be um, monitoring oil slicks, monitoring uh, agriculture, uh, uh, field change, uh, et cetera. Fantastic. So you have a, quite a wide range of potential sort of tasks to be working on. Was it, is it straightforward to choose a tool that will work for all of those different tasks? If you just focus on say data annotation, is there a tool that will annotate all the different kinds of data? Cause I guess you've got optical, you've got SAR and maybe some other kinds as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not super straightforward. And so I'm hoping with this blog post series that we kind of captured like um, some of the, um, you know, sort of the flow chart and the decisions to sort of make in, in your tooling. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, depending on um, what detection target you're trying to map, like if you're trying to map um, segments, um, say like your object of interest is like a center pivot uh, agricultural field, like a crop circle. Um, in that case, like you want an annotation tool that can quickly get you like the, the delineated boundary of each field. Um, ideally you don't want to like point and click, um, you know, your polygons, uh, if you can avoid it, you want to reduce like the, the time per like annotated label as much as possible. So you want an annotation tool that maybe has advanced tooling, like, you know, you click and it generates a segment for you. Um, and then you can edit that segment. Um, so maybe it has like a simple machine learning model that helps assist you in your annotation. Um, maybe you need something that, uh, is active learning based where like you want to quickly make some segments, make a simple machine learning model for your custom problem, and then have it assist you in making annotations and it gets refined over time. Right. Um, so not all tools support all those different options. And so depending on what you need, um, there's many, many options out there and yeah. we try to folks out with that. And do you find that, that you default to the, the same tool each time or does the task necessitate maybe using different tools for uh, different problems? Yeah, so with our um, stack, if we're going for uh, segmentation, um, we'll use uh, one of two tools. If we find that like it's taking a long time to uh, edit polygon segments, like the segments are very complex, um, we'll look at using something that's act, that supports active learning. So we've open sourced Perl, which uh, we've used for complexing like, uh, or for annotating complex um, 
landscapes where you're, there's agriculture, forests, shrubland, all mixed together. Um, and so with Pearl, you know, you, you make some annotations and then it makes uh, segment predictions. And so it kind of reduces some of the labor in um, doing vertex editing for something like building segmentation, where it's a little more straightforward. Um, you know, the, the buildings aren't as complex in shape as um, forest cover or agricultural fields. Uh, we use Java OpenStreetMap Editor because it has good geospatial support. Mm. Um, we integrated a magic wand tool where you can uh, click and generate a segment uh, quickly. Um, so yeah, it's it sort of depends. Um, there we find that like active learning, maybe we don't need to invest so much in that, and like it's it's better to spend time just generating lots of human annotated labels. All right. So that's that's the crux of it. Getting to the the speed of annotation, mm -hmm. and sometimes there might be specific features of a tool, like a map, for example, that might speed up particular kinds of annotation. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you've got that point. You've got you you chosen your tool for your data annotation. Data can be delivered in many different formats, of course. You can download a zip or you can access through some sort of APIs. Have you managed to sort of standardize that workflow or do you find that you also need to customize that part of the workflow? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for uh, training machine learning models, like if, if the goal is to like train a machine learning model with the data set that you've annotated, um, it's good to be able to uh, efficiently work with these large data sets. And often that requires like provisioning like um, cloud infrastructure that is next to where the data is stored. Um, with these data set sizes, sometimes like they can get into the hundreds of gigabytes when you are accounting for all the imagery plus the labels. And so uh, it becomes a little bit infeasible um, depending on like the clients we work with and their computing resources to download all that locally and work with all that locally. So what's, what we typically do is we work with um, different cloud providers, Azure, AWS, or Google Cloud. Um, we store all of the annotated labels and imagery um, in cloud storage. And then we uh, you know, write some infrastructure as code to deploy like our machine learning workstations to, uh, that, are, that are connected to those cloud data stores. And then we train, train models that way. And, we try to um, format our data sets that we create in, in stack format. Um, if clients want to prioritize that and make the metadata like really standardized and, and have simple APIs to access and work with the uh, geospatial imagery and labels. Mm -hmm. Okay, so optionally put a stack API in front of a data set uh, and have all of that running on the client's cloud of choice for uh, optimization yeah. of Access, fantastic. Okay, I got that. Right, so we've now annotated our data and we've we've accessed we can access it. Uh, what's the next phase of the machine learning process? Yeah, from there, I think the next phase uh, would be like figuring out your data pipeline stack. So, how do you go from a data set that's on uh, the cloud, like being served over a stack uh, with uh, in a stack API, um, or maybe if you didn't do that, like you're you're working with uh, you know, just cogs on a cloud bucket and loading the cogs directly from there. Um, what does your data pipeline look like? And um, because like your data could be served in like you know, these different ways, like maybe it's just cogs on a bucket or maybe it's you have an API endpoint to a stack, a stack API, um, it's good to have like a data pipeline tooling that is flexible and can I think be adapted to these different data sources. Um, especially if you consider that like 
when you're coming up with a novel machine learning model where, you know, with geospatial data, there's so many other data sets you can bring in, um, so many different vector data sets um, or, or imagery data sets that mm-hmm. it's good to have, um, I think, like a flexible data pipeline tool. So yeah. the tool that we talk about in our blog post is Torch Data. It's currently like the next generation API for um, loading data. Uh, uh, data sets from cloud data stores or locally. Um, it's a, it's going to support um, uh, data parallelism. So you can spin up workers that can load that data. Um, and, and it works well with uh, cloud providers. Um, mm-hmm. And it has the potential for you to describe your data pipeline graphically, um, to profile that data pipeline and see where the bottlenecks are. So there's a lot of exciting features in this, in this tool, Torch Data, that I think it's going to make it easier to like get the data pipeline really correct and, and fast yeah. um, because often like loading that data is the bottleneck when you're, when you're training machine learning models. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. And is Torch data itself, is that, is that a mature uh, project or is that something that you're, you're contributing to as well? It's a beta project. Um, we're not contributing uh, commits directly to Torch data, but um Wei Ji, one of our uh, other ML engineers, um, is the maintainer of a project called uh, ZenGeo. Um, so you can look up ZenGeo on GitHub. Its main dependency is Torch Data, and it's sort of like Torch Data uh, pipe operators that are specific to geospatial. So you can mm-hmm. create like a, a PyStack reader with ZenGeo that you give it the uh, endpoint for your stack API. You give it some arguments that like PyStack client would take. And it returns a generator that allows you to, you know, page through all the different items you want to load from from your stack API. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great thing about Torch Data is, like, the idea behind Torch Data is that it's easier to um, take components that have been de- developed for one project and bring them into your project. So mm-hmm. uh, a little easier to mix and match um, operations that you uh, that that are common among different uh, ml projects yeah there's an awful lot of reinventing the wheel that, that goes on the machine and your project so to hear about standardization particularly around geospatial is really uh, exciting development absolutely yeah yeah we we find we just reinvented the wheel way too much with other tooling um uh, even just within our own our own team um so we're finding that zen geo torch data are making it a lot easier just for uh me, myself, and and the four other ML engineers to share um, and and work together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're now to the point where we've got, I guess, a data loader, a data generator. I'm assuming that you also use PyTorch for your your model training from that stack. Yeah, yeah, we're we're pretty committed to um, PyTorch and PyTorch Lightning for our tooling of choice for uh, our ML framework. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. How complex does the actual training get? Do you do multiple GPUs? Do you have sort of clusters going? Yeah, typically um, we try to see, uh, often our clients, we're, we're running these machines on our clients, um, you know, cloud instance uh, or, or cloud account. So um, we try to see how far we can get with just one GPU and fine tuning existing models. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and especially when we're in the experimentation stage, where we're just you know fine tuning the hyperparameters, trying to get the model to to train well, and and you know making sure that validation loss is going down, um, along with uh, a training mm-hmm. loss that we're not overfitting. 
we try not to like deploy more infrastructure than we need upfront. Once we get to a point where like we feel like multiple GPUs is going to help, um, you know, train that final model that we actually like put into production, uh, then yeah, we would like go to scale up to multiple GPUs. Right. Okay. And does a tool like PyTorch Lightning make that that transition from a single GPU workflow to sort of you know multiple GPU workflow? Does that make that straightforward? Yeah, definitely. Like the PyTorch Lightning Trainer class, like you subclass that. Um, you wrap um, all your data pipeline in a PyTorch Lightning data module. Um, and from there, it's pretty straightforward to scale up to, to multiple GPUs. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And if you, I was quite interested in that workflow because you said that you would optimize on one GPU initially and maybe run a bunch of experiments and then switch to more of a sort of parallel approach across tools. How do you track all that and how do you manage that, that sort of experiment lifecycle? Yeah, we've, we've been using weights and biases. Um, it's a pretty popular tool for logging any sort of metric you want um, to a dashboard that you can share with your team. Uh, we've, we've really enjoyed that. Um, we've also experimented a little bit with uh, a tool called continuous machine learning. Um, and that's nice. Uh, like whenever it, it's like GitHub actions for your machine uh, learning, um, like model development. So when you make a commit with like a new model, you can set up a GitHub action that then comments on the pull request with basically your dashboard output. Like here's how the model did in terms of evaluation performance. Um, and uh, that's that's nice. That that tool's free. Uh, weights and biases, I think, is also free up to a certain point mm-hmm. until you bring in like lots of um, user uh, other users of the account. And um, I think there's like a certain amount of like artifacts you can store on that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of pros and cons and uh, to both of those tools in terms of pricing and functionality. But mm-hmm. uh, we've we've enjoyed both of those. That's really interesting. I, I feel like many of these platforms do offer quite generous free, free tiers that allow you to get get the ball rolling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. Okay. So we've now trained a model where we're happy with it. The next stage will be to use that model somewhere. What does that look like? Yeah. Well, once you train a model, and and then yeah, if you're happy with it and you've you've done the evaluation in terms of false positives, false negatives, you're ready to deploy it. Um, we uh, have used a couple of different options. Like in the past, we've engineered our own model servers um, and integrated those with uh, integrated that with tools like uh, ML Enabler using AWS Batch to scale up GPUs on demand um, for for different for inference jobs like on the scale of countries to run model inference, um, and that's worked well. Uh, but moving forward, with uh, we've we've found that it can be difficult to integrate machine learning engineers into the process of getting models served, you know, uh, and, and to make that easier, we've, uh, uh, I've kind of been pushing us internally to standardize on TorchServe, um, which is a project from, uh, that that's in, in like the, the larger, like torch ecosystem. Um, you don't really know, need to know a lot about Python web frameworks or, or anything about web frameworks in general. Um, TorchServe has like a standard model archive format. Uh, you define your handler function that says like, how should I pre-process model inputs and post-process model outputs? Um, and then you have a model server that supports management. Like maybe you want to add new models to your server. Um, it supports profiling. Like how is my model doing in terms of memory 
um, and CPU performance as it's performing a request. Um, yeah, and, and it, so it has a lot of like good built-in uh, tools that help you like get that model to deployable state um, mm. where it can scale up and support lots of users. Right, and then once the model is there and the services are built around those endpoints, is there a continual monitoring or optimization that takes place maybe to reduce costs over time or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So we worked with uh, the Nature Conservancy on this application called uh, Animal. And you, you can look it up, uh, animal.camera. And that's animal without the second A, so A-N-I-M-L, um, sort of a pun, ML. Mm. Um, and uh, with that application, we uh, were deploying a YOLO V5 model for object detection. And we we're working with camera trap imagery instead of satellite imagery. Uh, but we found that with uh, object detection um, running on the CPU, and we were using the CPU to like keep costs down and, and using uh, SageMaker serverless uh, to only spin up the machines when they were needed. Hmm. Uh, we found that on the CPU, it was taking a long time to run inference. Um, it was like taking up to, I think, like 10 seconds with an unoptimized model. So we helped them uh, optimize the model with uh, uh, Onyx, O-N-N-X, um, this uh, model interchange format that compiles the model for a particular architecture. So we compiled it for an Intel CPU architecture, and that uh, resulted in like really great speedups. Um, we were then getting, I think we got like 100x speed up about, so that model inference was taking four seconds. Um, and there's further optimizations to be done. Um, I think Intel has their own like model specific compiler called IPEX, which we'd like to explore. Um, but yeah, uh, there's, there's, uh, yeah. Optimizing for like your architecture is, is a good thing to do. Yeah. And as you mentioned, lots of new options, uh, on the horizon as well. Um, okay. That's been a really good introduction to the, the overall tech stack. Uh, I'm interested to dive into a little bit about the decision-making. So, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, lots of new tools are coming out. What's your process of maybe evaluating and then deciding if you should include in your stack or not? Mm-hmm. Typically, we, uh, yes, we, we'll talk about it uh, as a team um, because we each work with different clients typically in teams of two or, or maybe even just one solo ML engineer. And so we have uh, a diversity of perspectives on, um, you know, is this tool like useful uh, in general um, or is this like a pretty niche, like we would only need to use this like one off for a particular project. Um, so in this ML tooling blog post series, I tried to like put a lot of emphasis on tools that have been generally useful, no matter like your detection target, is it segmentation, object detection, image classification, um, you know, whether you're trying to serve this model near real time or whether you're trying to scale up um, resources like on demand and, or if you're trying to process batches, um, yeah, I see. I see that like all these tools could be could be useful in in, in a lot of these cases. Um, so yeah, typically we just try to talk about it as a team and decide like what's most useful for the kinds of folks that we work with. Yeah, and are there any particular requirements, say around the language that they are implemented in that that also fe feature in the decision making? For sure. Yeah, uh, definitely. We we we're as a team, more comfortable with Python than say R. Um, so, uh, and, and we're more comfortable as a team generally with the PyTorch ecosystem. Uh, we see that a lot of new um, 
models like transformer based models um, for vision and for text are being um, done in, in PyTorch and then published uh, in, in libraries that work well with that ecosystem. Um, so uh, yeah, the, we, whenever we're like engaging with a new project and thinking about you know, what model approach to look at, um, we generally find that like it's available in PyTorch and um, we, we tend to go with uh, PyTorch-based solutions, if that, mm -hmm. that helps answer the question. Yeah. yeah, we have well, worked with TensorFlow in the past and we, we've actually come up with tutorials for TensorFlow, but definitely moving in into the PyTorch ecosystem. Right, okay. PyTorch and Python. There are some tools and around deployment that use C++, for example, to get speed. So yeah. I don't know, maybe there are particular situations where you would also consider other languages. Yeah, if we were trying to run models on edge devices, like yeah. uh, we'd be looking at that more. Uh, but to be honest, we haven't really engaged with clients that um, are, are focused on those problems. Um, just kind of where we're typically working with is like folks want to deploy models in the cloud. And so compiling to edge isn't as, um, yeah, I think relevant there. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, I, I can see that being being done um, for say like a, a wildlife monitoring, you know, compiling a model to run on an edge device, you know, on a camera or something like that. I could, yeah. I could see that useful. Right, that's the final frontier deploying code on, on device. That's an exciting place to be, I expect. Yeah. Well, that's been a really good introduction. I was just curious, are there any, are you happy with the stack now or do you, do you think it will keep on evolving or do you see any major pain points in it that, that might require some additional variation? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly happy with the stack, but I think, um, uh, one pain point with like torch data right now is like uh, profiling is not quite there. Like, even though you can define all these steps in your data pipeline, it's still, it's still in kind of GitHub issue stage in terms of actually being able to see where are my bottlenecks in like the data pipeline? What's taking a long time? Is it the request to the stack API? Is it actually loading those assets? Um, yeah. So would love to see profiling um, come along. Uh, I'm also, you know, we're still pretty all over the place in terms of properly describing um, our annotated data sets. Mm. So there are various stack uh, extensions that can help you describe your labels for machine learning, as well as like, what is the area of interest that you looked at while you were making annotations? So the ML AOI extension, and then an extension to describe your geospatial machine learning models. Um, where is this model relevant? What is the MLAOI it's relevant for? Um, and those extensions are not like in, they're not like in like finalized state. I think uh, they're either in alpha or they're like proposal or they're beta. So I would love to see those advanced and get solidified more um, so that more folks are using them and, and it becomes easier to consume uh, geospatial ML data sets and models. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Let's hope that this uh, recording is also a bit of a call to action to get some more spotlight onto those those issues there. Well, yeah. once again, thank you so much for providing this uh, introduction and also for authoring the blog series. I assume that the best place for people to follow you will be obviously on the blog, but also I guess your LinkedIn potentially. 
LinkedIn, I'm not as active on, but Twitter, uh, RYB Avery, uh, is a good place to, um, yeah, j- check out musings on, on geospatial ML. Um, also the development seed Twitter, um, we share more, uh, uh posts and, and comms, uh, from our other ML engineers and geospatial engineers. So that's another good place to, to look for updates. Fantastic. I'll put the, the locations in the, in the show notes. Once again, thanks Ryan. And I'll see you next time. Thanks Robin. Great talking to you.